Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that your life is a play. You know, the sort of play that you go to uh, at a theatre. And curtains up, that's your birth. And what happens on the stage? The plots, that's your life story. And then when the curtains go down at the end, that's the end of your life. And each stage of your life is a different scene in the play. Now I want to ask the question this morning, what really makes the difference for what happens on that stage? What makes the difference in each of those scenes? Well I think there's two quick answers, aren't there? There's the director, who's directing the action, we mustn't forget that. But there's also the people who are on the stage with you. That really decides what happens in the plot, doesn't it? That really decides what the dialogue is, what the action is. And as we meet Jesus now, at this, this time in the story, there are just three characters on the stage. His disciples have abandoned him. Judas has committed suicide. Even Peter has gone now. Caiaphas has gone, and he's moved on now to a man called Pilate, Pontius Pilate. So all there is now really on the stage is Jesus, Pilate, and a man called Barabbas. They're the men who are on the stage as the curtains come close to coming down. Now Pilate, he's a Roman governor. Uh, There were men appointed by Rome to rule over sort of lesser provinces. And he'd been ruler probably for about seven years at this point. He's known in history for his cruelty and his hot-headedness. And he'd upset a lot of people over his time. Josephus writes that uh, Pilate's predecessors had sort of tried to get along with the Jews, but actually Pilate, well, he brought in images uh, into uh, Jerusalem and ended up starting a a riot. Philo describes that uh, he was actually told off for setting up golden shields, which had antagonised the Jews as well, and was quite in the habit of of getting riots going. Uh, Luke tells us as well, doesn't he? Luke 13, verse 1, you see on the back of your notice sheet there, that we don't know exactly what incident this is referring to, but it says there was some present at that very time uh, who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So Pilate was not a very nice man. He was always falling out uh, with the Jews. So that's one of our characters. The second character is Barabbas. Now he's an insurrectionist. He's a, a rebel. And it says in our passage that he's notorious. Now the word there doesn't necessarily mean that in a nasty sense, does it? Normally if you say someone's notorious, it's a bad thing. But it just really means famous. It's a bit like our word infamous. Uh, Is it good or is it bad? We're not, not quite sure, are we? So he's well known. And Rome would probably think of him as a terrorist. That's probably the closest uh, term we have. I imagine that Judeans probably thought of him as a freedom fighter. We know there's often that tension, isn't there, depending on whose side you're on. He may have been involved in one of the riots uh, that Pilate himself had set off uh, by upsetting people. We don't really know very much about this guy. The only thing we do know really is that his name is Barabbas, and that probably, that's his surname, his first name is probably Jesus, which is going to come into play a bit later on. So he's our second character, Barabbas, the insurrectionist. And then finally, we've got Jesus. On our first section, we're going to focus on him. A lamb goes uh, to the slaughter, verses 11 to 14. I'll read them to you uh, again. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? 
But he gave them no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Jesus here is standing before Pilate. This is his final trial before his, uh, after his grueling evening and his morning of, of trials and of beatings. Jesus gives his last recorded words before the cross. Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you have said so. And we saw last time, that's really Jesus' way of saying yes. But here we have no elaboration. Last time he went on to say, I'm the son of man. You'll see the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. But here it's just, you have said so. Part of it, I think, probably is that the question is a bit more loaded, isn't it? So asking if he was the Christ, which they did last time, well, that's, that's a religious thing. Asking if he's the king of the Jews, well, that was a politically loaded statement. Who was the king of the Jews at this point? Well, that was Caesar. Caesar was the king. Other people get that title at different points, but at this time it would be the emperor of Rome. So at this point, to claim to be the king of the Jews was claiming to be Caesar's rival. So no elaboration follows, just yes, because he is. But he's not going to get into the politics of the situation. Then follows these accusations by the chief priests and the elders. But it's as though someone's pressed mute on their accusations. If you remember last time, it told us what their accusations were about Jesus tearing down the temple and rebuilding it in three days. But here, no mention of the accusations. It's as though they're on mute. Uh, It's irrelevant now. Jesus is going to the cross. The pace is picking up. And Jesus himself is silent, isn't he? And it's not just as if it's just not recorded what he says. We're actually told that he's silent. And it's such a shock that even Pilate mentions the fact that he's silent. Matthew mentions it twice. Why is the silence so significant? Well, it's the picture that Matthew is trying to paint of this scene. And the picture is of the lamb going to the slaughter. That's what we've been singing in lots of our songs this morning. He's picturing Isaiah 53. On the back of your notice sheets, again, you'll see Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. It's trying to show us that Jesus is the lamb who was slain. And that's crucial for us to understand as we come to the cross, because what what is that passage all about? Well, the verses that are before it, verses 5 and 6, again they're on the back of your notice sheet. We sang it earlier. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The silence is there to remind us what's really going on. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is going to his death. That's what we're witnessing here in Matthew's Gospel. But what is meant by this image of a lamb? What's that on about? Well, it's meant to speak of sacrifice. All this, if you remember, is taking place over Passover. The time of year when Jews remembered when God had passed over uh, while they were in Egypt. What happened then was that a lamb was killed and its blood was put on the doorposts so that God would know to pass over. A lamb would die instead of the firstborn. And that's really what it's here to remind us of. Jesus goes to his death as our Passover lamb. 
silent before the shearers, silent before the slaughter, about to bear the sin of the world. The Lamb of God is here to show us that Jesus is about to bear our sin. He's about to be our substitute. He was pierced for our transgressions. So he's about to take our place. That passage also reminds us, doesn't it, why? Because all we, like sheep, have gone our own way, haven't we? We've not followed God, we've not done what we ought to have done, but instead we've gone our own way and got lost. We've rebelled against God, and he could leave us in that helpless state, couldn't he? But instead, he sends Jesus to pay our penalty. The Lamb of God will pay the price of the rebellious sheep uh, that we should pay. And that's what this silence is showing us, that actually he's going as a lamb to the slaughter. Our second point is a good plan that goes wrong. A good plan goes wrong. He's going to his slaughter, and Pilate comes up with a plan to save him. I'll read verses 15 to 23. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd uh, any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him in a dream. Now the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which two, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And, they, and he said, what, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So Pilate comes up with a plan. There's this custom, probably started by Pilate, we're not sure, but it's to release a prisoner at Passover time. It's a time of celebration, and it's still not uncommon. So if you know anything about American politics, uh, the president in America... Uh, has the right to uh, release people from prison, to grant them pardon. So they normally do that at the end of their office, uh, when they're there, but also there's a tradition that every Thanksgiving, they also issue a pardon to a turkey, uh, who is allowed to live and not die uh, for the Passover, uh, for the Thanksgiving uh, meal. So it's still something that's associated with, with celebration. Our Queen has the same power, but it's a, a little less used in the UK. But Pilate plans to use this custom to save Jesus from death. He'll offer the crowd an option. The option of either releasing Jesus or an insurrectionist called Barabbas. And clearly, at this point, he expects them to release Jesus. That's what he's expecting. Now, I don't know about you, but it sort of strikes me as a little bit strange. Because when you know about Pilate and the way that he had a habit of not being the kindest uh, of people, this kindness towards Jesus seems a little bit out of character, doesn't it? But there are three clues to what's going on. In verses 17 and 18, uh, he expects uh, Jesus to, uh, to be released, doesn't he? So, uh, 17 and 18. Uh, so when they gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up to them. He knows that, he, although he wants to release Jesus, the leaders want him crucified. But they want him crucified because they're envious. They're envious because he's popular. That seems to be part of Jesus' problem, is that 
he's popular and the leaders weren't. So if he expects Jesus to be popular, he'd expect that the crowd would go for him. Um, and it's probably in there as well to antagonise the leaders, isn't it? So think about it. They don't want Jesus released. So what does Pilate want to do? Well, he wants Jesus released. It also seems as well that he, Pilate doesn't seem to care about Jewish laws or customs. We see that from the way that he acts. Jesus was put up on a charge of blasphemy. I imagine that Pilate couldn't care less, really, about those sorts of things. In Pilate's mind, he, he was an innocent man because he didn't really care about the law. Even if he was guilty, uh, it wouldn't really matter. But then there's also the matter of his own skin. So verse 19, besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. He's had a warning from his wife not to get involved. Now, dreams, if you think about it, haven't played much of a part in Matthew's Gospel since right at the beginning. We had Joseph having dreams back then, but then it's been a bit quiet on those things. We also had quite a lot of pagan women, if you remember, at Christmas time, uh, in the genealogy playing a part at the beginning. But again, they've been, they've been there, but they've not been as prominent. Well, here we have a pagan woman having a dream about Jesus. And it's a bit of a clue as we read Matthew's Gospel that we are coming to the end. It's, it's sort of doing a full circle. But she hasn't just had a dream, has she? She's suffered by a dream. She's been plagued by it. She's been emotionally hurt by it. Now imagine in the back of Pilate's mind, it's two things really. One is, I don't want to suffer in that way. If my wife is suffering because of this man, I don't want to suffer. And then there's probably a little bit in his mind going, I don't want my wife to suffer either. Um, I don't know how how big that was in his mind, uh, bearing in mind what we know from history. But it's sort of working for his own good, isn't it? It's working for his own skin. He doesn't want to suffer because of Jesus. So he's essentially working for his own good. And it seems like a good plan. Jesus was popular. Palm Sunday today, that's when he's welcomed into Jerusalem with uh, crowds, isn't it? But his plan doesn't go as expected. Have a look at 20 to 23. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask Barabbas Barabbas, and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? And they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. In our stage in the play, Pilate has underestimated one thing. He's misread one vital, important component of a play, the audience. The crowd, instead of rallying for Jesus, goes against him. Whereas the crowd had welcomed him into Jerusalem only a few days before, now they call for him to be crucified. Now, it's not necessarily the same people. Jerusalem was a big enough city to have more than one crowd. But it shows us, doesn't it, the fickleness of human beings on display, that they'd hail him one day and then crucify him the next. This is what Matthew is sort of showing us by using that word crowd. And the crowd had presented two options. And as I said at the beginning, it's probable they were both called Jesus. Uh, people took it out, I think, out of our passage because it's a little bit confusing. But it would be strange to add that in as a detail for his name. So both of them are called Jesus. Which Jesus do you want? He presents to the crowd. Do you want Barabbas, who's the freedom fighter? Or do you want Jesus Christ? who's the suffering servant. And I wonder this morning, which Jesus would we choose out of those two options? The Jesus who says, stand up for your rights, 
Or the Jesus who says, lay them down for others? The Jesus who calls us to arms? Or the Jesus who calls us to service? The Jesus who stands up to the Roman pigs? Or the Jesus who commends the faith of a Roman centurion? When you look at it that way, it's not hard to see why the crowd took little persuading from the leaders to go for Barabbas. Perhaps this was the Jesus they thought that they were welcoming as he made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the one who would come and kick out the Romans. But I wonder which Jesus we would prefer in our heart of hearts. Do we want Jesus the, the lion, if you like, or do you want Jesus the lamb? Now, of course, Jesus is both the lion and the lamb, isn't he? But we mustn't lose sight of him being the lamb by overemphasising that he's the lion. Sometimes we can become enamoured with that Jesus, the glorious Jesus, and forget that he suffered on a cross. It seems more reasonable, doesn't it, to the world around us to have a glorious Messiah, one who will return to reign, one who's reigning now at the right hand of the Father. But it doesn't make sense to our world to have a crucified Saviour. And also, it doesn't make sense to follow in the footsteps of a crucified Saviour, does it? It's hard. But in Christ, we have both, don't we? We do have Jesus, the lion. He is risen. He is ascended. He's ruling now. But Jesus is also the lamb who was slain. So we mustn't neglect the downtroddenness of Jesus. Otherwise, we we run the risk of becoming arrogant and triumphalist. We run the risk of forgetting the downtrodden and oppressed in our world. The Jesus that God gave us was not a political revolutionary. He wasn't respectable in society. He was a suffering servant who calls us to take up our cross and follow him. Well, the crowd, they go with Barabbas and they call for Jesus' death by crucifixion. That's the most horrific form of capital punishment that the Romans had. So Pilate's good plan on paper or papyrus or whatever he used goes horribly wrong. And it means this, which is our last point, a guilty man goes free. A guilty man goes free. Let me read you 24 and 25. So when Pilate saw that he was not gaining, that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Pilate can sense that a riot is growing. He knows that from experience. He had quite a lot of them. But he can't have another report of another riot in Judea going back to Rome. In fact, he would be kicked out only a few years afterwards for just so many riots happening. So Pilate gives in to the crowd. Instead of stopping this, he quite literally washes his hands of it. It's almost as though you picture the blood on his hands and then washing the, uh, the blood off in the water. He will not be the one to take the final blow, or to make the final blow, but he doesn't stand in the way of it. Now the Jews of that day agree that the blood is on their heads. I want to say that that's not a curse on Jews through all time. After all, Matthew, who's writing this gospel, is a Jew. It's no justification for anti-Semitism. Nor is it a wish or a desire that it should be on uh, them. So there's no verb in that part, in that uh, sentence there. It just literally is uh, his blood on us and our children. They're not wishing that it happens or uh, sort of pronouncing a curse on themselves. They're just accepting the responsibility. So his blood will be on their heads. 
and we'll see that this generation will be judged in a horrific way within their lifetime as Jerusalem is, is raised to the ground and its temple uh, is burnt down. Jesus himself has foretold it in Matthew's Gospel. But Pilate, Pilate doesn't get off stop free here. Sometimes we tend to think, oh, Pilate, yeah, he was a good man, he washed his hands, it's fine. But think about it here, his innocence is self-pronounced, isn't it? He's saying, I'm innocent. But who's saying that? Well, he is. He's actually guilty of standing by and doing next to nothing to save Jesus. He could have put his foot down, couldn't he? He could have stopped the whole thing. But he decided to play politics and gamble with Jesus' life. And then at the end of it, he declares himself innocent of any crime. But we can be guilty of the same thing, can't we, before we get too harsh on Pilate? Maybe not the gambling with Jesus' life, but that self-pronounced innocence. So we can say, oh, I'm all right with God if there is one. I'm not against Jesus. I quite like Jesus' teaching, so he won't be so mad at me. It's not like I'm Richard Dawkins. Or it's just not the right time to follow Jesus now. And even as Christians, we can be very good at excusing ourselves, can't we? We tend to find ourselves innocent and others guilty. But as we do that, we gamble with our own lives, don't we? Certainly when we're, we're dealing with following Christ. As though we can actually pronounce ourselves okay with God. We can be little pilots, though, actually standing by and declaring ourselves innocent when actually we're guilty. Well, Barabbas is released. The guilty man goes free. And in that, there is actually a wonderful picture of what's about to happen. It might seem like bad news for lots of us, but for Barabbas, this was great news, wasn't it? It's a wonderful picture of what the the cross that we're coming to will achieve. Jesus' death will mean that the guilty can go free. And that's one of the shocking things about Christianity when you, you talk to people about it. This is one of the things that really shocks them. So I put Romans 4 verse 5 there. Uh, on the back of your notice sheets. Puts it really clearly. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, that's God, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. God justifies the ungodly. God justifies the people who are guilty. God takes wicked people and declares them not guilty. And it's shocking, isn't it? But it means that even if there are pilots here this morning... Or worse, God justifies the wicked. He turns them loose, he lets them go. Not all the wicked, but those who believe. That's what it tells us in Romans 4. That's shocking, but how can God do that? Well, the answer comes in verse 26. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Jesus is punished instead. The lamb goes to the slaughter. And there's two shocking words in that uh, verse as well. Scourged and crucified. And behind them, they just seem like two little words, but they hide a horrific reality. I'm not going to focus on them entirely because our passage doesn't. It does just pass them by. But it's worth knowing what they mean. Your footnote in your uh, Bible, I think if you've got a large print one, I'm not sure about the uh, small print one. It tells you what that means to be scourged. It means to be beaten with a whip with metal and bone in it. Sometimes, apparently, historically, the scourging would remove the skin. The idea was almost to skin the person. And according to Jewish law, you were permitted 39 
goes with a whip. But even crucifixion itself, we can miss the horror of what that is. We talk about it all the time. We forget just how horrific this method of capital punishment is. A victim is tied or nailed to a wooden beam and often left to hang there for several days until they die from exhaustion or asphyxiation. And this was often after being scourged. This is probably why Jesus didn't live so long, that he'd actually been beaten so badly before. So this is what we're talking about here, just hidden away in that almost one-line comment. Jesus didn't die peacefully in his sleep. He died the horrific death of a rebel. But he died it so that horrific rebels might go free. So Jesus here, as we come to this point, is taking the penalty on himself. Jesus, the innocent man, takes the punishment of a wicked man. A great swap takes place. The guilty can go free because Jesus, the innocent man, suffers for them. And that's not just a truth for those who are investigating Christianity. Sometimes we can think that's great for people who are looking into it. But this is the heart of the gospel. In my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a saviour. If we're a Christian this morning, it means that we've been set free. So why do we still fear condemnation? Why do we expect God's frowning face on us when he has set us free? Jesus was punished in our place, in my place. I've messed up royally in my life. I still do. I'm guilty. Except that Jesus took my penalty. I deserve death for offending a holy God. But Jesus' death took my penalty. And I took his place as a beloved son of God. So I'm not now as a Christian earning my way into God's good books. It's not like he's sort of taken me on into his company and now working my way up the ranks. He's brought me into his family by the cross. He's adopted me because of that great exchange that took place. And we can't hear this enough. We forget so easily, don't we, that we're right with God if we trust in Christ. We can be tempted to start to punish ourselves. We can begin to doubt that Jesus really did pay it all because we're so bad. Now Jesus' sacrifice is not an excuse to sin. But it's a wonderful reason never to despair in our Christian life. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who is interceding for us. Who can be against us? So if we doubt the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice to cover our sin, we need to no more than look at the cross. Look at those two words, scourged and crucified. Jesus didn't die the death of a nice person for nice people. He died the death of a rebel. For rebels like violent Barabbas, like indifferent Pilate, like cowardly Peter, like sinful Pastor Chris. We said at the beginning, if your life was a play, what would make the difference to the plot? And we said that it was the people who were on the stage with you. So this morning, is Jesus with you on the stage? Is he the main character in your life? Does he take centre stage with what you do? Do you remember his sacrifice and see your life in those terms? Or perhaps you've booed him off the stage, or perhaps you've 
more likely pushed in behind the scenes. Jesus went to the cross like a lamb to the slaughter so that we might be free. So will he play the part in our life story that he deserves? Will he be centre stage as he died and rose again to be? Let's pray that he will be. Let's come before God now and pray.